welcome to Quaker Faith and Podcast, where we will explore traditional Quaker beliefs and the variety of Quaker beliefs found today. Hi, I'm Mackenzie. And I'm Micah. Uh, welcome to Quaker Faith and Podcast, uh, episode three. We are dealing with the section Atonement and Reconciliation with Our Creator. This is a very short chapter. It starts off quoting from Barclay's Apology, which is a 17th century uh, treatise on Quaker doctrine. And I just want to read a little quote from it to get us started. It says, God in and by this light and seed invites, calls, exhorts, and strives with every man in order to save him. If this light is received and not resisted, it works the salvation of all, even those who are ignorant of the death and sufferings of Christ. So this section has um, essentially three points. The first point is the universality of the light through uh, to which we can, secondly, be obedient up to the measure of the light we are given, and third, that uh, it is possible, of course, to resist the light given to you. So, Micah, do you want to start us off with talking about the universal light? Yeah, um, so the the reading that we read for, for this podcast uh, focuses on uh, what John calls the light that enlightens every person who's come into the world, um, what Mark... Uh, refers to the as the gospel that's preached to every creature, uh, and that Quakers have uh, have have traditionally called uh, that of God and everyone. But there's this sense uh, and this experience that uh, God, that Jesus, that the presence of the Holy Spirit is available and present to every person, uh, to every creature under heaven, and that through this presence we have the opportunity for transformation in our lives, that our, that our lives are, are broken, but that we're not left without a counselor, a comforter, and a guide. Uh, and that we know, this, we know this experience and we can respond to this experience uh, directly, uh, even if we've never actually heard um, teaching about it. And so, um, uh, you know, Quaker teaching is that uh, God, God, God is capable of transforming a person's life and redeeming a person's life, uh, to put it in a certain language, to save someone uh, without them ever having come in contact with the story of, of Jesus or the, uh, or the written texts of the Bible, that Jesus, is, that Jesus is actually literally available to us even if we don't happen to have the text or the story or if for some reason the story we've heard has been distorted. Mackenzie, how does that how does that vision of uh, of, of Jesus as literally present to every person and available, even outside of church structures or the texts of the Bible, how does that relate to your experience growing up in the Roman Catholic Church? Ooh. Okay, so uh, I went to Catholic school too, um, although I have heard that uh, sometimes people who went to Catholic school are the worst catechized. But, um, I mean, I do remember being told that, you know, there's, there's only one God, so when anyone prays, those prayers all make it to the same God, because there's no other option. There's, it's, you know, the universal mailbox um, of <laughs> prayers. Um, so, you know, God hears everyone's prayers, even if they don't know necessarily 
you know, who God is uh, correctly or however you want to think about that. Um, but I'm pretty sure they would not uh, say that, you know, everybody is on like the same footing in terms of uh, religion. And I know that there was some confusion a couple years ago when the Pope talked about, uh, I can't remember if it was salvation or redemption, because I know that Catholics distinguish between salvation and redemption, and he was saying, you know, everybody's one of those. Um, and people went, hey, the Pope said everybody's going to heaven, regardless of whether they're Catholic or not. And it's like, no, no, that's not what he said. The salvation and redemption are two different. Oh, dear. Well, something that's interesting in the Quaker tradition, uh, at least in the Quaker tradition as I have experienced it, I am sure that one of our listeners is going to be able to dig up uh, an, an old Quaker writing and tell me why I'm wrong about this. So, uh, But in my experience with the Quaker tradition as it's lived today, um, something that I do notice is that um, there's, not, there's not a distinction made really between salvation and redemption, that uh, the... Right, yeah, I'd agree. The, 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 measure, the measure to which your life has been transformed by God's love is the measure to which you're saved. Uh, and and I, I think that actually is going to play in uh, to the second, the second point that this text deals with, which is uh, the text says, an individual is saved by following the light of Christ, which means participating in the resurrection of Christ and becoming holy like Jesus. It is actual obedience to the light of Christ rather than intellectual beliefs or rituals that transmits the saving power of God. And this is the part where I want to quote William Penn, because William Penn is known to have once said, uh, we will be judged by our likeness to Christ rather than our notions of Christ. And that's absolutely what's being conveyed in this part of the chapter. You know, like it says, rather than intellectual beliefs. Right. So the, um, the, the early Quaker movement came about in a time when... Uh, Beliefs, uh, and you might you might say like today actually, beliefs were cheap. Um, every everyone had everyone had beliefs about God, and 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 frankly, not everyone, but the vast majority of respected people um, in 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 the, in the time of the early Quaker movement uh, would say that they believed you know broadly orthodox Christian beliefs. Um, you know, every, everyone could agree about. Um, sort of the broad Christian story of, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the early church. Everyone agreed, um, everyone who was, who was prominent in the conversation at least, agreed that the scriptures were central and that that story was central to the conversation. So there wasn't an argument about sort of the basic facts of the matter. Um, but what was really distinctive about the early Quaker movement was their emphasis on obedience and the idea that um, you could not just know Jesus from the Bible, but you could actually know Jesus in your own personal life and that you could become more like him and, and, and know his presence with you. So uh, for the early Quakers, the obedience piece uh, was not merely a nice thing to have as a Christian, uh, the transformation of your life. Uh, into becoming more like Jesus was not just a nice thing to have, but it was essential. It was a mark of whether you were truly a part of the kingdom of God or whether you were a wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, that just reminded me of, did you ever see the movie The Whole Nine Yards? No. So one of the main characters is a mob boss and, or sorry, not mob boss. He's, he's a mafia assassin. And um, he is still married to this woman he hates because he's Catholic and you can't get divorced. And they're like, wait, so you're, you're an assassin with morals. 
Okay. <laughs> he, well, that, he, he's an assassin with rules. Yeah, but it was just. And I and I get and I guess and I guess the, you know the Quaker the Quaker stream of Christianity would argue there's a di- and I, and I think a lot of streams of Christianity actually would argue this there's a difference between morality and there's a difference between holiness and rules anyone can live by a code of rules but it takes God's intervention in our lives to make us holy and make us like Jesus yeah it was it was more about the whole he doesn't believe in divorce uh, but he's perfectly fine with killing someone and. And so that, I was thinking of that in terms of the intellectual belief versus the life change, because you'd think he would stop killing people. So what do you what do you, what do you think about this piece on obedience? Because I mean, of course, in in many Protestant traditions, uh, this is practically heresy to say that that salvation is. Um, well, you see, what I what I just said is something different from what the text said. Um, the text said actual obedience to the light transmits the saving power of God. And so what I'm actually hearing this the, these writers here say is that it is by obeying that we are saved. Um, and that's that's a pretty controversial statement because there's a lot there's a lot of material in the Bible that says we uh, we don't save ourselves. God saves us uh, by God's own power. And we just respond to that. So what, what do you make of that? I can definitely see why there were a lot of people in the 17th century going, I think Quakers might actually be Catholics. Uh, you, know, you know, those Papists, right? Um, because, of course, Catholics do say that works are important. Um, it's not a faith alone type of thing like the Reformed churches have. Um, and I think in both cases we would point, you know, if you're going to proof text, you'd point at uh, faith without works is dead. Right or at uh, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the work of my Father who is in heaven. But that's that's a little bit different. Um, like I I I, I hope um, I hope that most Christians would agree that uh, salvation must be or, or or relationship with God. Let's say this word salvation is so tricky, and we mean so many different things by it. So let's just I'm going to say um, relationship with God, right relationship with God, wholeness. I hope we would. I hope. I hope all of us would agree that wholeness and right relationship with God will be borne out in our actions and must be borne out in our actions. Uh, bad trees can't bear good fruit. Good trees can't bear bad fruit. But it's another thing to say that we that we we get salvation, we get wholeness and reconciliation with God through our obedience. I think that's a different kind of statement because the, the that sta- the statement that we get our salvation our, our salvation or wholeness or reconciliation with God through obedience makes it sound like we're in control of how the story ends up which isn't which isn't what I see when I when I read the Bible I see I see God saving a humanity that's very lost from ourselves Well I think if you're saying that the things that we do can't result in um you know, an accumulation of grace, then that would sort of be saying that um, spiritual disciplines are useless. But I think lots of people would say that spiritual disciplines are actually, you know, in their experience, very beneficial. But beneficial for what? Beneficial for transforming your life and making yeah. you more like Jesus? The The... You know, certain spiritual practices help bring people closer to God.
I guess I guess the question I would ask is, can a person even undertake spiritual practices without being led by God? Well, I think that's where the light comes in, because then you're talking about, you know, when the light is leading you to certain things, then that right there is God intervening. Right. And I think I think we I think many of us have had the experience of taking on spiritual disciplines that in fact weren't spiritual, but were more rote, rote repetitions and rules. Um, and so it is possible to do to, to sort of superficially do the right things without the without the right you know motivation of the heart and, and guiding by the Holy Spirit and for it to be dead. Well, I think that would be outrunning that, that's your something guide. The early Quaker, yeah, and that's something the early Quakers experienced uh, and inspired their movement was uh, just churches full of people who were who were doing a bunch of a bunch of rituals that may have been may have been prompted by the Holy Spirit at some point and may have been life giving at some point, but at that present time were just routines mm-hmm. that people did regardless of any kind of spiritual relationship with God. Right, and I mean, once something stops helping bring you closer to God, then you know maybe that means it's time to discard it. I mean, I <laughs> I said today during business meeting that. You know, maybe we should just stop saying things like first day in our announcements since we don't mm. use those in real, you know, in our normal speech. So why bother using the the old-timey Quaker names for days of the week and months in our announcements? All it's going to do is uh, confuse newcomers. Mm-hmm. So something interesting here in the text is that uh, it says um, that... Since one is re- since one is redeemed through obedience, so long as an individual is faithful to what has been personally required, he or she is redeemed. What God requires differs. What was required of Mary or Paul was more than what was required of most of us. How much is required depends on how much one is given. But there is no reconciliation that is separate from actual obedience and right living. And so, uh, what do you make of that, Mackenzie? Do you think... We each have have sort of a, a, a diff, different requirements of us depending on our individual life circumstances. Uh, I think that when I read that line, it uh, reminded me of a line in the Bible that says, um, "To those to have much has been given, much will be required." Yeah, and unfortunately, I can't disassociate that with Spider Man. <laughs> Wait, does that get quoted in Spider Man? Because I thought that was actually in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Peter, no, I mean Peter. Peter Parker's. I think it's his his grandpa uh, says it to him. Oh, with great power comes great responsibility. Man, <laughs> same thing. Yeah, same idea. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure how to think about that. Um, I mean, clearly, we don't all end up becoming perfect people after. Uh, you know, after becoming convinced or converted or whatever you want to say. Traditionally, Quakers call it convincement. Um, so, but then on the other hand, how much of that imperfection is continuing to uh, resist and be disobedient to the light? So, I, I kind of... As far as I understand, the doctrine that says that there's a measure of the light kind of developed during early Quaker days when we had this doctrine of perfection saying that you have the light and you can obey it and then you will be, uh, you know, as Jesus says, perfect like the Father is perfect, right? Um, 
And well, then of course there certainly were people who were Quakers and were not perfect and were you know screwing up and getting arrested for reasons that weren't Quaker civil disobedience. And there's a uh, so about that perfection. Well, they lived up to the measure of their light. So it kind of seems like that doctrine evolved as a uh, get it out of criticism free card. Um. I'm not I'm not so sure about that. Um, Barclay Barclay gives an explanation of this doctrine of, of sort of living up to the light that you have. Um, and the way he explains it is he says, you wouldn't expect the same thing from a child that you would expect from an adult. And there, and, and the way the way we would talk about it today, what Barclay was describing, is developmental stages. And so, for example, uh, I've got a I've got a two year old son, and he throws tantrums. He says no for no reason, even when he means yes. Uh, he isn't completely in control of his emotions. He's not rational ever. But it would be inappropriate for me to get up to get truly upset with him, and it would be it would be wrong of me to. Uh, judge him as as a as a troublemaker because he doesn't meet my needs as an adult uh, in his in his behavior and his and his lack of rationality um, and I think in the same way uh, so in in a certain sense he may be a perfect child uh, he you know he he's he's learn he's learning important things he's reading books he's singing songs he's learning to share um, he's learning not to hit the dog with objects. Um, and so he may actually be a perfect two-year-old, but he wouldn't be a perfect 16-year-old, much less a perfect 40-year-old. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there is any sort of idea that the measure changes over time then? Um, you know, that, that the measure of light you have can grow? It, 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 may, also, it may also just be a reference to context. For example... Um, your your anyway, it, it was it's in the it's in the scripture that you that you quoted um when you become uh the ceo of a corporation your responsibility changes mm-hmm. the bible uh, somewhere in the bible in the new testament it says um basically that uh greater uh great te- teachers have a greater responsibility and will be judged by a higher standard than people who are not teachers right um and so, and so, I mean, this this is actually why uh, this is a big part of why we are taught to pray for our elected officials and for the leaders of the country because they the the, the measure of light that they will need to live up to the level of responsibility that they have and therefore accountability before God is immense and so they need our support. Okay. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense. I. You know, I'm I'm sort of of two minds about it. It's it's sort of, uh, on the one hand, you know, is this about um, you know sometimes people are in really bad situations where finding a actually good path forward is difficult, and so they're picking between you know the quote unquote lesser of two evils, and so there is a smaller measure of the light available in that situation, or. Um, is I don't know, I, I feel like it can be used as as a way of saying like 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 I was saying before that uh, well you know you screwed up but you just didn't have enough light to do it right <laughs> as as a, an anti accountability thing I guess yeah I, I I think that would be I think that would be an abuse of 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 the of the teaching 
to say, well, he should have known better, but he just must be, I don't know, he must not have enough light or something. I, I, I think I think that would be probably a misunderstanding. Now, I, I do think there is a there is a concept that is is prevalent in society today that that might shed, shed some light on this, which is the idea of uh, sort of extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give an I'll give an example of this uh, from history. Um, uh, you and our listeners uh, may be familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian theologian and pastor uh, in in the 1930s and 1940s in Germany, um, and actually led a resistance movement of the church called the Confessing Church uh, that that attempted to be the church in the midst of a situation where where the Nazis were trying to. Uh, were trying to uh, turn the church into a, into a wing of the Nazi Party, and he eventually uh, d- got involved in a plot to kill Hitler. Um, and I, I, I personally, you know, it didn't end well for anybody. He ended up being killed, but also Hitler was not was not assassinated, and it just went. It ended very badly. Um, and in retrospect, I, I wonder whether he would re, he he. Well, I wonder whether he himself would say, "I made a mistake. That wasn't actually what God was calling me to." However, given the circumstances, I can really imagine myself doing what he did. Like it, it like it, it, it's, such, it's such extenuating circumstances that I, I judge him different. Like not that I have any right to judge, but but at, in my natural state, I judge him differently than I would judge um, someone in different circumstances who decided to kill a, you know the leader of a country. Um, so I do think circumstances matter, and that might have something to do um, with with what with what this doctrine of you know living up to the light that you have is. Um, the same action can be different depending on your context. Even even if it doesn't make it right, mm-hmm. it makes it more understandable. Less bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. Um, it's uh, like like I said, I I feel like it can go it can go two ways. I think it, yeah, it's possible to abuse that doctrine. Definitely, um, and at the so, same time, you're right that uh, when we're talking about you know everybody having spiritual equality, that that also doesn't mean that we should. Well, of course, we're not supposed to judge people, right? So we shouldn't judge people for not uh, being as uh, attuned to whatever thing as somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, the third section of this chapter um, is a little more interesting. It talks about resisting the leadings of the Holy Spirit, uh, but it gets into in the in the author's part as opposed to in Barclay's part, it talks about there being a set time at which the Holy Spirit will show up and actively plead with you. And that if you resist that, then you end up with a hardened heart. Uh, which is a kind of weird um, bit to read, and um, you know, Michael, what did you think about that? So before before we before we started recording this show, we talked about this a little bit, and I and I believe my exact words was, "This is stupid." <laughs> um, it, but, but you know, Mackenzie Mackenzie made some good points to me in terms of like, well, you know, well they were, they were probably thinking about the fact that you know, in in the Book of Exodus, Pharaoh. Um, has his heart heart hardened by God, and he actually, at a certain point, is not free to make the right decision anymore because God has decided how things are going to go. 
And so that's that's one place where you can see um, God sort of takes over, and God says, "Nope, I, I, you've made you Pharaoh have made your decision, and now I'm going to work with it." Um, right, sort of a run out of chances. And I know, yeah, I know that run- like one of my friends um, had a lot of trouble with the passages in the Bible where it talks about somebody's heart being hardened, saying, "But if there's supposed to be free will, like." If God hardens the person's heart and thereby prevents them from doing the right thing, isn't God then making them sin? And how does this work? And so traditionally the Quaker answer to that is, well, it's not that God is forcing them to sin. It's that they have already made so many choices. They're so far down the path that... um, by now their heart has hardened and they're not going to make the right choice at this point. I do think it's really, whenever, whenever we're looking at texts like these and trying to extrapolate basically propositional, propositional truths from stories, I think it's really important to look at the story and recognize like there's a, there's a genre problem here, which is that um, the story of Pharaoh and Moses and the Exodus was not written with the intention of, of being a source text for propositional doctrines about God and grace and salvation. Um, and uh, that's not the purpose of the text. Uh, the, I, I think it's fair to say the purpose of the, one of the purposes of the text is to demonstrate God's power and sovereignty in a situation where the Hebrew people were desperately weak, enslaved in the process of being put through genocidal policies towards them. Um, so, I, I, I just I just think like it's, it is dangerous to try to say well because God heart, because it says here that God hardened Pharaoh's heart therefore God hardens other people's hearts all the time and that's a typical thing God does. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would also say that um, you know like if you read in the book of oh is it Ezekiel or Isaiah I mix them up um, one of them says that. Uh, God will take away people's hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh and love. And so mm-hmm. there, we also, you know, I would therefore say that um, if your heart is hardened by resistance, that it's not like necessarily a permanent thing. Yeah. And I mean, I would, I, you know, I'd share a, briefly a story from my own life, which is, I mean, I have, I have resisted the Holy Spirit before. Um, and I don't just, you know, I mean, I, unfortunately, I, I suspect that I resist the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. Um, but I remember one time when I really, really resisted the Holy Spirit. Um, and this was this was before before I was a Christian and before I had before I was willing to have a relationship with God. Um, I was at an Eastern Orthodox, uh, I think it was a Christmas Eve service or something like that. And um, I just felt the power of the Holy Spirit really uh, strongly. Uh, in the congregation and sweeping over me, and I just was not ready to go there, and I rejected it. Uh, and if, <laughs> in the strictest sense, if this doctrine is true, then I shouldn't I shouldn't have a relationship with God because I rejected the Holy Spirit. Um, so, at the at the very least, I know from experience that rejecting the Holy Spirit does not shut the door forever necessarily. Because it didn't for me. Right. Second chances, third chances. Uh, maybe it wasn't the right time for you yet, but... Yeah. And so, 
Which, I, which I guess, you know, guess, it does say the, here, thankfully we are assured the Lord is patient, desiring that we all be saved. Yeah, I guess, I guess actually so, what, what, rubs me the, what rubs me the wrong way about this teaching is that it really does seem to veer into the territory of what early Quakers would have called notions. Um, this is some this 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 yeah, is an idea agreed. that can't that can't that can't be proven. Um, it has no practical value uh, for our life as Christians. It just is sort of uh, an idea about what might be happening behind the scenes that we can never verify. So I, I just don't know what value this teaching has. I think it's better to be discarded, frankly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So um, so before this session, we actually looked at the questions ahead of time. See, we're getting better at this. And uh, we determined that most of these we were actually going to hit on in the course of um, summarizing and discussing. And so we're actually just going to focus on uh, number two, which says that Barclay says that God's light is not part of human nature, but part of the nature of Jesus Christ. By our obedience to the light, we participate in the nature of Jesus Christ. Early friends understood following the light as difficult, as bearing the cross, as having our personal nature spiritually crucified in order to be spiritually resurrected. In what ways is following the light hard, and in what ways is it easy? How do we know when the hard parts are of our own making rather than Christ's? What about the easy parts? Those are really, really hard questions. Because when I, when I look back over my life and I think about the parts that were hard, um, it's clear now that, you know, th there have been times in my life, in, in fact, extended stretches in my life, where I felt like things were hard because I was trying to be faithful to God and, and I didn't understand why they were hard, but I thought it must have to do with me being me trying to be faithful. And in retrospect, um, I think maybe I was just mistaken about what I should have been doing in the first place. And it was hard because maybe because I wasn't headed in the right direction. And so it's really difficult to know whether, whether difficulties in life are coming from obedience, which they can, or from confusion, or from disobedience, uh, because difficulties, difficulties and um, uh, way opening, as we say, but then I don't want to say things being easy, but uh, but both difficulties and blessings can actually come uh, from uh, uh, from from both obedience and disobedience. I know maybe a little bit a little bit uh, on the edge for me to say that blessings can come from disobedience, but we can do things that temporarily make us feel pretty good. Um, when we're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it is possible to think, hey, hey, God's blessing me, when in fact um, we're, doing, we're doing evil things. Well, right. I mean, if you rob somebody, you temporarily have some more money. So um, I just want to go back to the beginning of that discussion question because it's actually the uh, beginning of it that was what I found most interesting is where it's talking about how the light is not part of human nature, but it's part of Christ's nature. And I think that's um, an important thing to look at. Um, I think there's sometimes a uh, temptation to uh, compare the light to your conscience. And when you look at early friends, they're a lot more clear that these are separate things, um, that your conscience is more a product of your upbringing and what you've been taught, whereas the light is uh, more universal. It's not based on what your parents told you. It's because it's coming from God. Well, it looks like we are just about out of time now. So thank you everyone for listening. And our next topic is going to be 
uh, you know, two weeks from now on Monday will be righteousness, holiness, and the power of God, which is going to overlap quite a bit with what we talked about today. Secretly, all the Quaker stuff kind of overlaps. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a very tangled web we weave, right? Except without the deceiving. Yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, we hope you liked the episode. We will see you back in two weeks. Um, let your friends know about this podcast if you are enjoying it. So, Mackenzie, how can they let us know uh, how they like the show? Uh, they can let us know on our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash quakerfaithpodcast, or on Twitter at quakerfaith, or you can leave a comment on the episode on quakerpodcast.org, or even leave us a review There's on There's so iTunes. many ways to say... I love this, or I don't quite love this. You can find us on the web at quakerpodcast.org, on Twitter as Quaker Faith, on Facebook, and on iTunes. 